0: because it was too tasty.
1: If you're really lucky, you might get some Marvel aftershows. An adorable serial killer.
0: Oh, everyone's a critic, now. Can I have some gold bullion and Pop-Tarts,
2: please? Film noir. Bonnets. Fish.
3: Be more Charleston.
2: Hello, I'm Tim Worthington, and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that nobody else ever seems to. Right in front of me right now, I've got a copy of the 1968 Busy Lizzie Annual, Busy Lizzie being a forgotten entry in the BBC's Watcher's Mother Lunchtime series about a puppet girl who had a magic wishing flower on her dress. Judging from the front of this annual, Lizzie, who bears an uncanny resemblance to musician Isabel Campbell, is having some form of venture involving a really, really big flower and really, really small butterflies. Unfortunately, Busy Lizzie is so forgotten that nobody ever actually made a record based on it. There were some of her contemporaries in the Watch of Mother time slot that did get their own album though. And when writer and author Gabby Hutchinson crouched joined me on Familiar she was only too keen to talk about one of them.
4: This is an LP I had when I was a kid. I think I had two LPs as a kid. One was Singing With The Band which I think has been done on this. Yes, by Catherine
2: Lowe, yeah.
4: I loved Singing With The Band. So this is an LP of songs that were inspired by the Mr. Men TV series. It does have Arthur Lowe speak singing.
2: That's <laughs> <laughs> <not> generous,
3: really. <laughs> Rhythmically
4: speaking, Bill Shatner style. Through some the thing is, when we started chatting about doing this, I was like, oh, I wonder if I can find this anywhere online. And I found out that the whole album is online. Just someone's just stuck it on YouTube, which is amazing because I still remember all of the words to this LP that I think I must have last heard in the mid 80s. <laughs> (laughs) I I can remember the song about sneezing and there once was a pig about to go oink and instead gave a big a tissue and a sheep about to go bar instead gave a deep a tissue <laughs> there's a song about a beautiful song but they're really nice songs i was listening to it again and like these are lovely songs they're really pretty the song about daydreaming there's a song that's based on mr snow oh i remember the nosy 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 is who i am but nevertheless i must confess nosy is what i am as well nosy is what i am i saw an old lady she was hanging out close I was poking my nose and the next thing I know she put a peg on my nose Uh, so there's a song about Mr. Nosey getting his nose attacked (laughs) in various ways that I think is I think that's the closest to the canon that is just based on the Mr. Nosey story because he gets horrible things happen to his nose because he pokes his nose and the next he knows he gets painted on his nose there's a story about Mr. Bump just getting assaulted (laughs) (laughs) That had, actually, Arthur Lowe did make an attempt at singing that one, because he goes, Mr. Bump, poor old Bump, he's a clumsy chap, a-going bump into this and into that. And then there's this really angry-sounding man who's, actually, he reminds me of, if you've ever heard Margaret C. Bourne-Smith's Billy's Navidad, which does the rounds every Christmas, why is she just shouting like this? it's a voice like that so you've got Arthur Lowe going so be sure that you don't bump into him today if you do he'll bump you out of his way and then this weird voice goes Mr. Bump had a nasty bang bumped into a big fat man it has got a big it's, it, this was recorded in 79 so I don't know if they were like trying to challenge a sort of weird sort of punk kind of thing <laughs> so it was before the young ones or anything like that <laughs> but yeah it was like the story's about he bumps into a big fat man which is a, like a little bit well I mean it's the 70s so you know you can't really blame it for not being very PC <laughs> but yeah this man just like beats the shit out of him <laughs> What were his other songs? There was one, the song at the start, which put lyrics to the Mr. Men theme yeah, tune. Yeah, I
2: have a huge issue with this because it is called Let's Go to Mr. Land. Let's go to the Mr. Land. The Land, magic, Land of no. Magic, apparently. Now, I don't recall it being identified as Mr. Land in the books. And more to the point, don't they live in our world, not Mr. Land? Because whenever there's like a postman or anything, or you don't know, have to go to a shop or whatever, it's in the normal world, they're normal people. In fact, is it Mr. Small who, like, sees the written to book about him and goes to see Mr. Hardwick's and Oh, like, hard you? Where's my book? So, I'm sorry, that is not Mr. Land, that is reality. And it also claims that Mr. Land has Mr. Trains or Mr. Trucks. Mr. Clowns and Acrobats. Now, mm. when were they all in the Mr. Man? <laughs> They're just in the background. <laughs> Mr. Trax. That is bleak, isn't it? Like, you
4: can... Uh, Mr. Train, that's basically Thomas. And Mr. Clowns and Acrobats, fine. But Mr. Trax
2: is just... A DJ. <laughs> yeah, I
4: guess. That would be a great name for a DJ. <laughs> and No, I quite liked it. It's a really pretty song. It's a mystery. trip a It felt like the people who wrote it, because it was written in like the late 70s, it felt like they were kind of channelling sort of late Beatles and maybe like a little bit of the Beach Boys. It felt like it had that sort of warm sort of round sound to it. (laughs) That makes it sounded round. And it's just got so, such fond memories of being one of the two records that were mine and my sister's because we were poor, we were poor growing up. (laughs)
3: we didn't well
4: I remember getting a telly that I think my parents rented but they did have a record player and my mum and dad had like all their records that turned out to be really cool by the time I was a teenager because they had like Beatles and Who and stuff like that by the time I was like in my mid-teens it was the mid-90s and it was an incredibly cool thing to have original Beatles and Who LPs at that point with like Oasis being trendy and stuff like that but yeah these two albums that we had and I can remember pretty much all of Singing with the band as well These two Novelty children's albums And when I listened To it online I was taken back And I was sent To such A warm Happy place So yeah If you haven't heard it Go and
2: find it Because it is It is actually delightful <laughs> But it does involve A lot of Arthur No Speak singing Well what really struck me About it, listening to it again Because this was an album I didn't get until much later It was basically It's funny you should bring The Who and the Beatles Being quite cool In the mid 90s Into it because yeah. that's about when I got this because I was running around looking for all kinds you know it was when the lounge core thing was happening mm. records that had yeah. hidden groovy tracks and I remember buying mm. this thinking there's got to be something on this and there isn't really but it's very charming in its own way but I mean you were mentioning the you know the sort of sub ELO stylings of it really I call mm. the whole musical approach the first thing is the music's written by Keith Mansfield who did the grandstand theme and the Wimbledon oh theme wow and so. but the words written by Joe Campbell and Paul Hart who did a lot of soundtrack work around this time who also did the theme to Rockliffe's Babies the late 80s gritty BBC detective drama which huh. anyone of a certain age remembers because it had kind of a screeching sax rock theme tune <laughs> they kept breaking down into kids singing rock baby on <laughs> the tell Block, mum's on the social dad's in the dark etc <laughs> I just find the discrepancy between that and this is bizarre yeah. but the thing is you mentioned the Mr Daydream song Daydreaming yeah. when I saw listen to that I thought this reminds me of Forever Autumn from the War of the World soundtrack yes! all of a sudden they start going on about the autumn leaves yeah. and you know I was trying to work out a poem this was from 1976 so Jeff Wayne may have heard this but it was just such a strange thing to hear that to suddenly be confronted with something so close to what I was thinking it sounded like
4: yeah maybe I mean that one's probably the prettiest of all the songs it's really not it just it takes you through the seasons of the year and just takes a moment to marvel at the changing of the seasons and it tells you that the world is a wonderful place to daydream in. What a lovely thing to say to a child.
2: There is a very strange thing with the Mr. Men though that they really just took off very, very quickly. But it felt like they'd always been there even though the range kept expanding. And I remember seeing a slightly older kid had a copy of Mr. Happy where it had no Mr. Men on the back. It just had the oh. publisher's logo really big. It was like there was a Mr. Happy event Horizon. (laughs) It was as if this universe of Mr. Man had existed all along.
4: Well, Mr. Tickle was the first. Mr. Tickle is why the Mr. Men were invented, because I think Roger Hargreaves' son asked what a Tickle looked like. I think it might be like the MCU in that Mr. Tickle is the Iron Man, but... Mr. Happy is Captain America so I, I think that they've now sort of Mr. Tickle was the first Mr. Member, but they now place Mr. Happy as
2: being the first in the, in the MMCU <laughs> oh, I don't like the thought of that being a Mr. and Little Miss Cloak and Dagger that's a bit
4: Yeah, <laughs> I remember getting, well I don't remember it very well but there's a photo of me on my fourth birthday, my mum had made me a Mr. Happy cake, by that point they were so big that children were asking, because those days you didn't go buy an xbox cake from the shop if you wanted a novelty cake one of your parents had to cook it so we were at the stage where i had asked my mum for a mr happy cake because they were that big and also my mum was able to source some sort of design
2: to make it but it was only the Mr. Men though because Roger Hargreaves kept trying to invent other things I mean on the previous mm. edition this Joanne Shepard talked about the Book 2 books which, which
4: yeah, I remember
2: you know they were prominent but they did just bomb and they went out of yeah. print very quickly Little Miss eventually became quite a big thing but they took mm. a couple of years to bed in and I remember they repackaged the Mr. Men cartoons of Mr. Men and Little Miss with new yeah. Little Miss animation, and it did feel a bit kind of you like this <laughs> there were all kinds of other books he did like the John Mouse books and roundy and squarey they just didn't take off people mm. only wanted the Mr. Men why was that?
4: I don't know I think people like the concept of like a whole personality trait being a person it must be that they're lovely sort of simple books my kids were really really into them especially my son who for his first ever World Book Day when he was in reception he went to Mr. Bump we just like put him in blue and put some bandages on him yet they're still popular now and yeah I think it's just that sort of simple concept of oh whole character to be an element of human nature that's quite an old concept because if you go back to like the
0: morality plays and stuff like
4: that <laughs> And <laughs> you get characters who are oh hi I'm lust I'm greed <laughs> maybe there's sort of continuations of that whole sort of morality plays sort of the vices and the virtues or characters again you've got characters that are supposedly good traits and you've got characters who are supposedly bad traits and often the characters that are supposedly bad traits change and then they're right back to on their bullshit by the time it's not their book anymore <laughs> like Mr Messi cleans up but by the time that he needs to be like a, a side character in another book, he is and I see shit again. It just didn't last. Doesn't Mr.
2: Tickle literally just tickle people and then nothing happens?
4: Yes, that's because that's the first one, I think. In the first one... He's got no redemption. The... No, there's no moral in the first one. In the first one, he is just going, this is what a tickle would be if a tickle was a person. So yeah, he has absolutely, he's an amoral. <laughs> he goes around, like, hangs out outside of school. and Post puts his hands through the school window that's like three stories up and tickles children without their consent. (laughs)
2: <laughs> this is like my theory about Fatty Fudge from the Beano, who I think is a statement on the human condition, because he will do anything for, I say, a handful of sweets. There's normally three juggled by Minnie yeah. the Minx or somebody, and he can be persuaded to do anything. And this resemblance to somebody who is still the Prime Minister at the time of uh. recording. I don't <laughs> think it's a coincidence. And at the end of that book, because there's no redemption or
4: anything, he just, the, the end of the story is you might get a tickle and at that point obviously
2: the parent reading is supposed to tickle the child but yeah there's no moral to that at all it wasn't just mr men songs though as arthur lowe himself might have put it what a lot of items of mr men merchandise there were there were all kinds of tie-in items including doubtless lots of things that you could have personalized with your name on that if you had a fairly common name though if you were like writer Hilary Mitchell, that was a luxury that you didn't encounter that often.
1: So my next choice is something that I think almost everybody had, certainly in the 70s, and I desperately, desperately wanted, but it was very hard for me to get. Make of that what you will. Children's bedroom doors in the 1970s were almost invariably decorated with an enamel nameplate, probably about you know four or five inches long, a couple of inches high, and they would have the child's names. I've been looking back at the ones I can find you know classic 70s names actually martin's room mary's room richard's room i really wanted one of these but of course you would go and buy them in fact where parents bought them from i have no idea But of course, just like, you know, branded, named items for children these days, you can go into a shop and all the popular names will be there. But if you're called something like Hillary and you're the only Hillary you've ever met, you're the only (laughs) Hillary in the school. I've met some adult Hillary since, but as a child, I never met another Hillary. You've got absolutely no chance of getting one of these. You couldn't go on the internet and put in the name and get it sent to you a few days later like you can with virtually everything these days. So I really, really wanted one. All my friends had them. The boys ones normally had something like a racing car in fact the one i've found is a martin's room one which has got a kind of british racing green car from i don't know probably about the 1940s on it the girls ones normally had a bunch of flowers on imaginatively so mary's room the one i've seen has a bunch of very old-fashioned looking flowers i mean they look victorian and also interestingly i found one that's for richard's room which seems to have some deer on I've absolutely no idea where that came I know I was well maybe Richard did want to go hunting maybe this was for the upper class child who you know had access to guns and beaters and things like that you know several hundred acres I don't know I of course really 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 wanted one and I actually I think I'd probably got well into my teens and I'd long since thought this was you know this was just something I was going to have to live with I was going to have to go over the trauma of never having a door plate and then one weekend my aunt came to visit with a present and she had source who knows where from she'd actually managed to source a nameplate for my door I was over the moon but of course what happened was I very proudly went upstairs took off the sticky back stuff stuck it on my door and over the moon with it really proud some hours later my mum came upstairs probably to say good night and said oh, oh you've put it on the door well I hope you've stuck it on properly and sort of pressed it really hard with her hand so it cracked right down the middle in between no. the few sticky bits." Devastated. <laughs>
2: is genuinely awful and it makes me feel bad about the fact that i was really... i had one but i resented it for two reasons one it had a vintage car on which yes
1: a vintage car i like martin even at that age
2: you no, know i like i like fast cars i liked hot rods and things <laughs> but the other thing was it said timothy's room now i have never been timothy to oh, anyone apart from one grandparent who wouldn't call any of us by anything other than full versions of our names <laughs>
1: And did she buy it for
2: you? She did. And I yeah, have occasionally, occasionally, under certain circumstances, let some women address me as that, normally when they're angry. But <laughs> even at that age, I thought, why can't we have shortened names? What is so wrong with that? But I feel a bit chastened now.
1: Try shortening Hillary. I mean, a few people call you Hills occasionally, which sort of makes me wince slightly. So ah, there we go. What can you do? But no, I was absolutely gutted and years later i had a conversation with my mum about this who I have to say you know i mean she's been a wonderful mother in many ways but she denies everything no i didn't <laughs> yes you did it's it's not the sort of thing that you forget as a child you know you, you live with it for a long time so i'm just about over it now i think it did have the awful flowers on but i could i could kind of look through that because i was just so over the moon to have anything with my name on it was such a rare thing in fact it was the only time as a child i can ever remember getting something with my neighbor because you just couldn't get because you know I think they had slight pretensions as my parents so they didn't want to call me something ordinary they didn't want there to be three people with the same name in my class which is kind of fair enough That does mean I've gone through life being called something slightly unusual. And of course, ever since Hillary Clinton came along, I constantly get people spelling it with two L's. This is another just cross I have to bear, really.
2: Well, I was going to say, I can't imagine what it's like to have, you know, an unusual name and as a child not (laughs) be able to get anything with your name on. I mean, I am at, you know, I'm at the far end of that spectrum, really, but I am still on it. You were always able to get stuff, even if it was your full name. But I remember when I, you know, even when I was in primary school, because, you know, where I grew up, it was quite a mix. Area already. So there were kids with foreign names, and stuff. Mm-hmm. you know they are like Camilles and so on. So I don't remember what would happen when we get given things with our names on, which yes. sometimes did happen in school. What happened to those poor kids? I can't remember.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I suspect they're a lot better off now because, as I yeah. say, you can you can go on the internet and write in the correct spelling. My sister did occasionally get things because she was Adrienne or is Adrienne, which of course is a French name. So occasionally somebody had been to France; it's a very common name in France, and I'd pick something up for her so she did relatively well compared to me but possibly not as well as a Tim or a Martin or a Mary.
2: There's a sort of double-edged follow-on question for that which is on the one hand did you ever get anything else with your name on but on the other was it a name so out of phase at that point that you didn't really get anything people made fun of you for it for because you know with me it was always things like Tiny Tim, Tiger Tim, Language uh... Timothy, that poem about the boy who ate soap nobody remembers that now but I hated that with a vengeance but I'm struggling thing to think of any Hillary's that in that time frame yeah
1: no I mean I I rarely met Hillary's my own age I've come across a few much older and I once had a really odd experience well it was odd for me because obviously you've got an unusual name it's very rare you meet somebody with the same name but I used to work in museums and I was once at a meeting full of people who worked in museums and there were two other women in the room called Hillary and we were all just completely didn't know what to say to each other because we never had the experience of meeting two other people with the same name at the same time. Not only that, we all worked in museums, which seems really that was very strange. I mean, if you're if you are called Sarah or you know Jim or Mark or whatever, this must happen to you now and again, but it's never happened to me before. So I doubt it will ever happen again. We were all kind of sort of mutually astonished that we'd met two other people with the same name on the same day in the same kind of sector. I know one now who's a bit older than me and I have occasionally come across somebody younger. The thing that happens to me quite often, and I read something that somebody else had written who had an unusual name, which said that quite often people don't seem to be able to compute it. So quite often, it's not unusual for me to send an email to somebody and get a reply back saying things like, dear Helen. And you think, how have you misread Hillary as Helen? Or how (laughs) have you, you've just seen a capital H and something in your head has gone, common name, they must be called Helen. It's happened to me, enough times absolutely not a one-off it's happened quite often which just seems really bizarre to me but there we are
2: i just hope they're all nice pleasant hillary's because the problem with my name is i have a long list of what i call name traitors where oh dear. it's bad enough having this name anyway but then you get uh-huh. people like tim martin who owns weatherspoon oh, yes. tim farron who seemed to be a nice guy that yes. suddenly came up with something a little bit homophobic and yes. they all they all seem to be making use of themselves in public mm. and like why can't you behave
1: that's frustrating well obviously Hillary Clinton and people have very mixed feelings about her, but I'm not quite sure she's quite as bad as she's been painted by Donald Trump and his friends. So I don't think she's quite as bad as that. Now, I don't think, I have to say, I don't I don't remember meeting any Hillary's and thinking, oh, good grief, good grief, that's awful. Yes, I, I suppose, I. you know, I've learned to live with it. I've learned to live with it. Writer and
2: artist Juliet Brando and her parrot Digby will probably be quite pleased to receive her name branded and merchandise based on the Tellybugs because, well, she's got such fond memories of them.
5: They were little shits, that's who they were. <laughs> <laughs> They were kind of like almost proto-Teletubbies, except the televisions were in their faces. Computers were quite new in those days. And so they were sort of, they were seen as sort of futuristic. Yeah, they were supposed to sort of funny little flying around superhero creatures. But I was inspired by the baddie, as I always have been. Also, oh my God, the theme tune, such an earworm. Having not seen it in however many years it's been since it was on, it was, like, I think, 1986 it came out. I think there were about a million episodes, which I don't remember at all. Yeah, the theme tune, it sticks in my head. The baddie lady was called Arcadia. She was a punk and she had cool makeup and she was a sort of like proto kind of hacker gamer. She had her own little robot army. She was a cockney and she had a little kind of mohawk and she was always trying to absolutely fuck up these little shits who were just flying around doing i don't know stupid shit i don't know what the fucking telly bugs were doing but she was always trying to fuck them up I loved her growing up I absolutely loved her and I don't even think she was in that many episodes but I always watched it hoping she'd be in them because she was brilliant she was a bit punky and rude and very
2: cool well looking at it now I'm wondering if the reason I didn't really watch it was because I had a bit of a thing at that point about you know I was a kid I didn't know that much about computers but I knew enough to know when adults who didn't know anything about computers were doing things to children say look this is new and exciting like there was a children's itv magazine show called video and chip that (laughs) sort of thing and you know the b like the children's bbc links being done by quote Computer graphics. That's really is kind of, oh, you like this, don't you? And looking at this, the names of the telebugs were Chip, who was coordinated hexadecimal information processor, Samantha, solar activated micro automated non interference hearing apparatus, and Bug, binary unmanned gamma camera, which doesn't quite work really because that should be bug Bugco. Basically, get proper names. Don't just use words that you've seen in the Sunday Telegraph in the feature with Paul Daniel saying, I'm an early adopter of home computing. So should you be? I don't know. Something about it will have felt really patronising to me at that age. So that's probably why I avoided it. Even as
5: a tiny child, it was patronising to me, and I was like, "Fuck those cunts!" Sorry. God, I hated them. I hated them. I hated them so much. I mean, they had a very catchy theme tune, but I was fully Team Arcadia. I just, I wanted to kill them. I wanted to kill them. Absolutely. They were horrible. They were horrible, horrible creatures, and I wanted to kill them.
2: (laughs) But did you mean the start or the end theme was really catchy? uh, What was the end theme? Well, apparently, there were like three batches of episodes I made. The first just had the start theme on the end. The second had a song called I Have a Heart which at that stage was sung by Susie Westerby, who did the voice of Samantha. But for the third batch, it was sung by George McRae, the 70s rock your baby hit maker, who later did Look, a single of it.
5: I have no memory of this. I only remember the opening theme is just tattooed into my brain forever. I literally this morning I woke up with it in my head. It's never stopped. It's like a curse. But, yeah, no, I, I have no memory of these end themes. I have no memory of people singing things on them. I just remember the weird little beepy fucking... uh Oh, God, I hate them. I hate them. Well,
2: <laughs> I think a measure of how dislikable you might have found them would be reflected in the fact that the only other thing I really remember about them was smash hits went through a phase of... You know, if, like, somebody like... Um, we might be coming back to him in a bit. Bono was being really pretentious at their answers to him. You know, would say, we don't really care about that here. We only care about the telly books. (laughs) it's kind of it's a put down of them and pretend just pop stars at the same time
5: (laughs) oh jesus christ oh my god no i hate them i hate their stupid little fucking telly faces i am fully team arcadia she was amazing i love her she is a brilliant cartoon punk who just hates them and i am entirely on her side
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I've got a fact about them that might make you hate them even more, which is that it was made for the animators on it later went on to do things like The Animals of Farthing Woods, you know, so they had quite successful careers, but it was made for the ITV company TVS, which lost its franchise in the early 90s and went through, you know, receivership in a couple of different hands of the archives, eventually ending up bizarrely owned by Disney. And now <laughs> nobody knows where the master tapes of half, well, I say half, Oh, probably about 90% of their output is, and there's things like that's love, the big ITV sitcom of the 80s. Most of that's missing. Nobody knows where Cat's Eyes is. Loads of children's ITV programmes like Letty and Henry's Leg that were repeated loads. There's no sign of them. The boy who won the pools is gone. Well, the Tellybugs exists in full.
5: Oh fuck them! Oh my god, they've broken the time full and I hate them even more. Oh my god. Oh my God, those little fucking shits. Fuck the fucking telly bucks.
2: Fortunately, broadcaster B.B. Lynch wasn't quite so swearily disposed towards one particular 70s teenage pop sensation. Oh my God,
0: I loved them. <laughs> I, I loved them because I, I do make myself fall in
2: love with bands quite a lot, I did when I was young. Again, when would this have been? This was 1976. And the story is people say that they won new Faces. They didn't. They won it at least one week, possibly a couple more, but they didn't win the final that year. But it was enough for them to have a brief pop career on the back of.
0: And this lot, I do remember. I remember them on Top of the Pops, and they were just so cute. I mean, combined age of about 12, I imagine. <laughs> and, and there was always one that was just quite tall, like, un, you know, maybe not even unnaturally tall, but just unnecessarily tall because the others were so teeny. And they were in kind of, like, tux... <laughs> <laughs> they were in like proper suits and they looked really ill at ease with their little 70s haircut. And they were from Liverpool and they were like the Liverpool Osmonds. <laughs> I loved the Osmonds and Liverpool. And it was like four little jimmies. <laughs> And one was a bit taller and it was just it was just like so supremely exciting and actually it was a really good little pop song and I loved it and what I loved as well was they tried to do I mean it's terrible isn't it you know I love Silk Sonic at the moment and I love Silk Sonic do all this kind of you know the stylistics and the temps and they do all the kind of the 70s brilliant choreographed moves and then you'd get the bands that weren't quite as smooth <laughs> and our kid were one of those bands and they so they had a little dance routine and it you know, wasn't great but they just looked so so thrilled to be there and they just had cheeks that were like little apples that shone and they were beautiful and i did the dance but i added my own moves because their moves they and i think you'll agree this is a mistake when they sing the line you just might see me cry for you they should have pointed outwards just i don't know what they would have done might maybe a little shoulder shrug see put their hands to their eyes and cry wipe away a tear they don't do that they just do the standard arm down sway move and i think you can it's my deaths, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> yeah. you just might have a chicken or fish. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but there is a <laughs> clip online same. of the on new faces where I don't know how he sneaked into this again, but one of the judges is Noel Edmonds <laughs> who says he really liked them. But, quote I was a bit concerned about the Thunderbirds reject style dance, I kept looking for the strings. <laughs>
0: Oh, everyone's a critic, Noel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved them so much. And, oh, they were just adorable. And they just and I think they just were a one-hit wonder, weren't they?
2: I think. Well, it appears that, you know, the usual awful story with these kid stars, especially in those days, was you know, they had a crooked manager who stole everything they earned and might have been neglecting them in other ways, should we say. But they seem to have had, you know, a proper agent who was properly above board and so on, but didn't check how many days they were legally had to work in a year and used them all up, capitalising on the one single. And then everything no. they brought out after that, they couldn't promote. There's rumours out there that there was a Blue Peter where they said on air, well, our kids were supposed to be joining us, but they're being told they're not allowed to work anymore this year. Oh no,
0: and it's so, a school night.
2: <laughs> yeah, so all, they put out a couple more singles and an album where they looked very dapper on the cover of it, which did nothing. And that was it. One of them has disappeared as apparently a bit of a recluse. Some of the others did used to keep performing around Liverpool for years afterwards. We're quite self-effacing about it There's a lovely I don't know what it's from But on YouTube There's a video Of some programme Where they've reunited them And because the reclusive one Didn't turn up Amanda Holden Dresses up In the dinner jacket You know with the big collars Joins (laughs) in Does his part And does the dance as well And they're really game You know you can tell That they just look back With affection On this very strange episode In their lives And it's You know it's not Ruined them They clearly got on You know with what else They had to do in life
0: And this made me think about you so a couple of days ago I watched a clip of them on Top of the Pops again because obviously I knew we were chatting it's not like I do it weekly <laughs> it's my my, my our Kid hour and I watched it and it I actually made me really emotional and I was trying to work out what it was and it did like really make me tear up and I was when you look back at stuff it's kind of I guess it's a combination of thinking look how thrilled they look they're just you know their mates at home are watching this and their parents and their you know siblings and just you know everyone and they would have been so thrilled and so proud proud and also it just made me feel nostalgic for the time wait so when you because you do so much that's nostalgia based this is such a weird question but it may be is that a happy place or is it because for me it makes me feel sad
2: most of it is a place of fascination really just with you know how things were made and how they were put together a lot of the stuff i'm kind of in a bit of a nostalgic about was from before i was born as well <laughs> yeah. i didn't see the newcomers the mid 60s bbc soap but mostly it's okay i mean it's difficult when it reminds you of people who for for one reason or another are no longer around but there is something bittersweet about the r like you say the whole phenomenon of it because these days you will be able to sustain a career you know there'll be somewhere I mean you look at I always think of Simon D you know the big sort of late 60s chat show host who I mean there are kind of murky reasons behind his disappearance one of which is it's alleged he complained about one of his fellow Radio 1 DJs for something and departed from the BBC soon after that uh, let's just leave that there. But these days, when you think of how you can do something absolutely awful and be given another show somewhere, somebody who was just a bit arrogant, a bit Chris Evans-like, he would have had no trouble walking into another job on another station now. But, you know, like with our kid, when the single stop selling, that's it. That's and there's it. something very sad looking back at things like that about, you know, they didn't get a chance to. I don't think they would have gone on to do Tales from Topographic Oceans or anything, but <laughs> the fact that it was just over that quickly is quite sad, really. This
0: is, so I did, I used the gift of Google. Apparently, and again, this might not be true because it's wiki. One of the ARKID members left before they hit to concentrate on another band. And then he went on to be in the Icicle Works.
2: Isn't that, like, <laughs> fantastic? I wonder if he regrets leaving ARKID. Well, I imagine it was, you know, it was probably quite a fun experience. Because as you say, when you think of performing kids in the 70s, you think of dreadful bubblegum songs, like things like Millie Molly Mandy by Glyn and that sort of thing. But this is, you know, it's quite a tune It's you know it's obviously aimed At pleasing all the family Apart from the teenagers I think But it is A very strong song And I was astonished To find out who wrote it Because it was co-written it? By Roger Greenaway Who amongst other things He wrote Softly whispering I love you Which he sang The lead vocal on Blame it on the Pony Express My baby loves loving Banner man Something that's gotten hold of my heart Give me that ding And he wrote I like to teach The world to sing And he also wrote You might remember this The original theme music From Why Don't You Kings Road Raspberry Parade <laughs> (laughs) Which is then like so there's him there's also Barry Mason who wrote Love Grows Rosemary, Rosemary Goes" The Last Waltz Delilah oh, he also wrote ridiculous. Who is Doctor Who by Fraser Hines which he played Jamie in Doctor Who in the 60s It did a song with atrocious lyrics about how wonderful his friend Doctor Who was
0: but do you know what this shows this shows how dumb the management were so if they had this team behind them and they had these gorgeous boys they'd got the TV exposure and the mess up was that <laughs> I nearly swore I nearly swore the same person talking about our kid what the hell is going on (laughs) they had it all there and the mess up was the number of days that kids could work you know what
2: well perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised about that because the 70s was an era as we found out when i appeared as a guest with paul Abbott standing in his house when unsuspecting children could see an absolutely nasty sleazy horror film just on itv in the middle of the afternoon that is a bit of dialogue from bad ronald which is an ABC television film from 1974. I still cannot believe that I saw this and how I saw it, but that's the important thing. I'll save that for a second. Basically, the story is, it's about a mentally disturbed young man who's got that real kind of 70s nerd look going on.
6: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, the huge curly hair, the enormous glasses. glasses. Yes, and he lives with his overprotective mother and he's bullied by the other children. And one day, a girl picks on him in the street on her own and he pushes her and she falls over hits her head on the ground the inevitable happens his mother decides to hide him in a special kind of constructed cell in the house basically with a hatch in that she pushes basically bread and water under and he well you have to question his sanity to begin with but he grows even more unbalanced in there starts daubing the wall with graffiti of kind of fairy tale inspired figures and buildings and constructs a narrative where he's the king this imaginary land. His mother dies and he doesn't know and he's left in there and another family move in and he starts stealing their food at night and they think they've got a ghost but then he becomes obsessed with their daughter and concocts a thing where in this fantasy land he's going to run away and she'll be his queen and he is only thwarted at the last minute. I have not made that sound quite as sleazy as the whole thing actually is. I saw this on ITV one afternoon.
6: I've tracked down when it was shown on ITV, on the various ITV. Regions okay, so like you say, this is from America 1974. It gets over to the UK in 1975 to start with, but it's shown on Scottish ITV November 1975 as a late night movie. That's important, late night movie. It's shown on Southern in 1977 as a late night movie. It's shown on Anglia in 1978 as a late night movie, and it's shown on Granada at 2.25 in the afternoon
2: yes yeah for a long time I didn't even know what it was called it's just a lot of images from it had haunted me I think I was at my grandparents and I don't know what they would have been doing you know where they would have been I watched the whole of this film on my own I found it less frightening than it did just like fascinatingly disturbing and it was between I have actually looked this up Granada put it between Afternoon Plus which is a very tepid chat show and The Sullivans which is that yep. wartime cat-pullage drama. You know, daytime's on ITV. You did get some weird stuff, but it was weird because you didn't understand what it was, you know, like footage of blokes doing extreme sports in the Arctic and so on, but it was normally, it was things like The Beachcombers, that Canadian sort of comedy drama, The Outsiders, which is an Australian kind of zen outback thing about, I think it was a grandfather and his grandson sort of going on a spiritual wander and running into hoons and larrikins, (laughs) as they used to say (laughs) in those days. That's my dog, whose baby looks familiar, which I may have stolen the title off for this. What? <laughs> but, you know, it's all these kind of like things like cosy panel shows and so on. And on the BBC, they didn't really have anything, you know, until about, I think, 1985. You get the news, you get Watch With Mother and then you get a film in the afternoon. There's always something like, please don't eat the daisies or not now, Conrade Or a Yankee ermine, which is the one where John Pertwee plays an American. And you know he's American because he talks in John Pertwee's voice because everyone Mac. <laughs> you know, everything was relatively... Attuned to the idea that, you know, the sort of people watching TV in the daytime in those days might not be the most robust members of the viewing audience. It'd be children, it'd be the elderly, it'd be people who weren't well, you know, the long term unemployed. And what possessed them to (laughs) pull Bob Ronald in in this time slot? I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked up that schedule. And it's quite a me day because later on you've got the Ghost of Motley Hall, the Muppet Show, Vegas, or rather, Vega Dollar, which is that very strange American detective show about. Dan Tanner, and then later on obviously I didn't see this, ITV's Appointment with Fear slot, which a League of Gentlemen always go on about, had What's the Matter with Helen, another great sleazy TV movie, but really, Bad Ronald was more worthy of being in that slot than that, and I noticed most of the ITV regions, when it was on opted for an episode of Columbo <laughs>
6: well, Yeah, absolutely Like I say, all those other regions show it as a late night movie, and then it turns up in January of 1979, literally in the middle of the afternoon, and the description I've got from a little snippet from a contemporary newspaper is 2.25 bad Ronald Brackets TV film. When a disturbed teenager kills a girl, his mother hides him in a secret room. <laughs> are you'd be thinking, hang on, what? That's just before the Sullivans? Yeah. It's insane. I mean, it's based on a book by a writer called John Holbrook Vance, who sci-fi fans will know better as Jack Vance. Apparently the book is much, much worse than the film. You know, they had to tone it down to make it... <laughs> because, really? Because in the book he... Well, in the film, things happen to this lad accidentally that trigger this spiral of badness in the book he does do something deliberately which i'm not going to say what it is because it's horrible from what i can tell i've not read the book and I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to read the book. Yeah, it's got a strange reputation, this. I was doing my research. You can't watch the whole thing online. I think it sometimes pops up and then people take it down. Warner Archives, an official Warner Brothers archives, has a clip of it. It's like 30 seconds, and it's just him eating some cake with his mum or something. It's like they've given nothing away. In that. But you can find odd sections of this, and it is exactly like you'd imagine it to be for a mid-70s American TV <laughs> movie. It's very much in the vein of American things... That that are horror-based, often hang around houses. You know, in the UK, if we got horror stuff, it's usually ghost stories about abandoned houses or castles or manor, you know, big old places. Whereas in America, it's very often about the family home, I suppose, possibly because of it being a younger nation, you know, newer properties, different types of design of property to what we're used to. So you end up with stuff like, I mean, yeah, Psycho is obviously an influence on this. Disturbed child of mother type thing. But then think about what comes in the 80s, like Poltergeist and the Amityville Horror, you know, which are straight pure horror films then but then The Burbs stuff like that yeah house based American horror well house house even yes so it is baffling that this turned up and I don't know has it left you with scars well
2: a high watermark of how baffling it was was I mentioned this to Stephen and Dave from Scar for Life who were absolutely gobsmacked that that had happened. You know, when you consider they could easily have seen it and they didn't given their geographical location but they absolutely could not believe it, especially when they produced proof and the thing of producing proof is interesting because it did kind of, it really really stuck in my mind that I didn't know what it was called. Yeah. I hadn't made that kind of mental note at that age and it was one of the first things where I kept describing the plot and nobody knew what it was apart from this happened really really often you get people who bless them for trying they don't know the answer but they go looking usually trying things that you've tried yourself a million times but the number of people came back to me saying I think I know what this is it's called crawl space now crawl space was a film for the same production team the same tv network the previous year with a slight difference it's about a hippie who invites himself into a family's house and goes to the crawl space as you know a protest against nixon or something and won't come out <laughs> i could tell straight away it wasn't that but i did love the post of a crawl space appears to have nick drake falling down the stairs it makes me not want to say because i want that to happen in it and then it's not to. <laughs> no. but eventually i think it was actually i mentioned it in cream up the Old TV cream mail out, and somebody did reply saying that sounds like Bad
6: Ronald, and I googled it straight away. The name is so ludicrous though (laughs) because. If you'd, if, as opposed to good Ronald. Well, as a, it's just such a baffling name for a thing. You're gonna write, Imagine if you'd have made a note of it at the time in your sort of five-year-old handwriting and your parents came in and said, why has he written Bad Ronald down here? <laughs> yeah, it's not a name that I can't imagine that you'd ever get to by trying, no matter how hard you were thinking no, about it, no. it's a Bad Ronald. A- <laughs> yeah,
2: and you don't really want to be, you know, kind of nerd murder's teenager girl film, you know. That, no. You don't want that messing up your Amazon algorithm or whatever. But it really was something that, you know, I shouldn't have seen. Literally, I shouldn't have seen.
6: Well, they shouldn't I've, have shown exactly. it. Exactly. <laughs> it shouldn't
2: have been on them. It wasn't something I stayed up, you know, sneakily stayed up to watch, you know, like so many other things were possibly because of this, because it did spark an interest in the grimier side of cinema, which I have maintained to this day. <laughs> but it really kind of crowbarred its way into my mind, because it just seemed completely alien I'd rather, I was even aware of alien the film by that let's not split hairs here okay it maybe hadn't come out quite at that point but I was aware there was a film about an alien yes. that you know you weren't allowed to see because it was for grown ups but I cannot explain the impact it had on me and how it haunted me is the wrong words it didn't terrify me but it was like a looming presence in my memory sort of like towering just behind children the wheelies was this
6: oh. giant looming murderous nerd hidden inside the walls of a kettle.
2: While Paul was very kindly standing in as host, we also had a bit of a chat about some of the films that came out during lockdown that nobody really noticed, including The Hoarding, a horror film written by directed by and starring Karen Gillan. A lot of them seem to pass people by but I think this one, it was because it was basically the wrong thing at the wrong time.
6: Yeah, I mean in theory it's the right thing at the right time because it was done for halloween and it comes out on the i think she announced it on the 29th of october 2020 as a halloween thing but when you're in the middle of a lockdown as we all have been you don't necessarily want to be, even though this is only about 12 minutes long, I think you don't necessarily want any more horror in your life, creepiness. And So maybe that is it. Maybe it's because there was a lot of stuff coming out, like you say. People had more time to do stuff. And it's not an amateur production by any means. This is a full, you know, directed, assistant directed, edited, scripted, very nicely designed, brilliantly acted Miniature horror film. And it's really interesting that this, you know, as someone who's on the internet every day on Twitter and all these things, not a clue about this. This did not cross my path at all. And it's a really nice example of the short horror story film.
2: It really is. And it isn't kind of in the style people
6: would expect either
2: because it seemed to me a bit more like something you would have seen in the early 70s British anthology horror film. Yeah. It I think was so. like something out of ghost stories, you know, the Andy Nyman and Jeremy. Dyson playstroke film. Yeah. There's a bit of public information film in it as well I think. It's very in that UK horror kind of vein. And again, you know, she's got all these credits that it starts with, apparently is a 2015 short called Coward, which I've not actually seen. Mm. But then I think the year after that she did Conventional, which is a really twisted story of starring her as an ageing screen queen who's had kind of botched plastic surgery and the validation that she needs from her fans, from her old roles kind Kind of comes to Dominator her in a really disturbing way. Then the party's is just beginning, which stars Lee Pace, who obviously was one of her co-stars in the first Guardians of the Galaxy film. Yeah, which is a really d- I don't recommend watching that if you're easily triggered. It's a very it explores some very dark themes. That's more of a psychological horror. Then you get this and it is a shame that you know like you say I think the fact of what it was and when it was because it came out almost at exactly the same time as ironically a Marvel series called Hellstrom which very few people have seen I mean, it's on Disney Plus now but still nobody's <laughs> watched it which is about Damon and Anna Hellstrom who are two Marvel characters who are essentially the devil's children and originally it was going to be an anthology series called Adventure Into Fear which they scaled back because they knew the Disney Plus deal was coming up so they just did the story with the Hellstroms in I honestly think because that got such a drubbing when it came out that people were like horrid out they didn't want something about these two disturbed people with their possessed (laughs) mothers yeah yeah. journalist mick Wright, on the other hand wanted to talk about something absolutely scandalous outrageous shocking and really showing up the hypocrisy of the tabloid press so just who are sharky and george they're the crime bosses of the
7: sea tim that's who they are Sharky's like this Lazy pink shark Who's quite large He's sort of got A kind of Humphrey Bogart Style hat And George is a Smaller fish Blue with a yellow face A bit younger And they solve crimes In Sea Cargo, Which is a Underwater based American city Basically <laughs> Mainly I pick this Because it comes Into my mind The theme tune Comes in immediately But it just is it's Something about it It's just sort of like I think it's kind of Lives in that world Of like Well for me It's a couple of things Crossover in it Which is Dogtanian and and the Musker Hounds and also Bugsy Malone it's this kind of taking of something and making it into a cartoon version of it there's something very pleasing about it it didn't run for very long either it was only ran for two years there's like 52 episodes I don't know how many of them I've seen I used to see a lot of them because it was programmed in a block of cartoons with Mysterious Cities of Gold on Channel 4 on Sunday mornings for I think about three four years programmed on there for quite some time and obviously just used to fill space it comes from that era where there was a lot of French and Canadian shows that were redubbed for the UK market like another show that I like a lot is Around the World in 80 Days with Willy Fogg for instance. I can't remember that many episodes, I just sort of have fragments of it in my head and you know it's one of those very formatted shows in that like it's always a villain of the week and Sharky and George you know defeat the villain of the week but it's very pleasing, the characterizations is pleasing the visuals are pleasing. Conceptually it's like okay, yeah you get it, you get it from the theme tune,
2: there's Sharky and George, the crime busters of the fine, I'm in. Well, to me, it forms part of that very brief phase there was. And I only really experienced it from a UK perspective. I'd love to know what it was like in America. That suddenly, off-the-wall animations on television were a mainstream proposition. Because obviously, it starts with The Simpsons. And then you get Red and Stimpy and Beavis and Butthead. And, you know, obviously, all three of those, to varying extents, were quite adult-orientated, or at least teenage-orientated. But you get a lot of cartoons aimed at kids. You know, Earthworm Jim would be a good example of that. Another incredible theme change. Well, yeah, and they've all got that incredibly high quality, you know, really good scripts, really good imagination. And it only lasts for about four or five years, and then South Park kind of puts a stop to that by, you know, they've all been playing with going too far. Even the kids' ones. South Park just went too far every week. That was the full stop on it. There's never really been a critical hit of that kind since then, I don't think. I mean, there have been things that you know, have been successful, been popular, but it's never been that kind of level of what's the new one does anyone see the new one yet I
7: guess until Rick and Morty I feel like Rick and Morty exists it almost like pops in you know because you have years and years where it's American dad and family guy basically in dominance and then the Simpsons you know in it's sort of dying years similarly with South Park it's like it had such cultural dominance that now it's a kind of you know it's still there but you know it's just why is it still there the problem with Rick and Morty is that it's fans are by and large appalling but <laughs> But it has that level. I think it belongs in the same lineage as something like Ren and Stimpy because it has that, like, depth of lore and oddity. Like, I, what I always loved about Ren and Stimpy is, like, how there are all these brands of food in it, or the weird, no, sorry, don't like it, horse, turns up a lot and stuff. And, like, you just feel like, oh, this world is, like, very complete. And oddly, actually, *Rocco's Modern Life is quite like that as well. Not as extreme as Ren and Stimpy, but still, you know, like, there are little bits in it. Like, it, the more you watch it, the more you see oh, okay, this world is very thought out. And obviously, Rick and Morty takes that to another level because it's like a philosophical, psychological explosion. Sharky George Seat, very simple compared to that. But this just, just something about it. It's like, yeah, I, I, somewhere in a room at some point, some people had to walk into a room and go, what it is, right? It's a film noir, but it's fish. <laughs> and a shark yeah but the shark and the fish get on and the shark never tries to eat the fish and don't overthink the logic of a vast city underwater that's a bit like chicago but entirely full of fish and don't think at all about how none of them have opposable thumbs so how
2: does any of this stuff in the city work no
7: don't worry about any of that just
2: this is what it is
7: and they went yeah fine
2: you know just make it and there is that kind of like i mean because like i say one of the reasons i think south park changed all that was you mentioned family guy and american dad which you know they have the strengths but they follow like their that thing of going out to offend whereas I think before that I mean obviously something like Sharky and George although it you know it had its moments where it poked at things with a very sharp stick even Beavis and Butthead had its extreme moments but at the same time a lot of it was just completely ridiculous and they were always they were the victims of their own stupidity and they knew it and they blamed nobody but themselves for their failure with women and the thing I have to point out to people a lot is this is kind of idea now people say they were the first in Cells like, well, no, because you know, A, they did blame themselves. B, who was their best friend? Daria, who, you know Yeah, one of the best spin-offs of all time. Exactly, and because she was the only person that treated them like actual people who just happened to be stupid. So they had a lot of respect for it. There was that kind of I don't want to say moral cause these things, because I'm quite if Ren and Stimpy was quite immoral in a lot of ways, but like the Canadian national anthem, I don't think you could get away with now. But there wasn't the Intent to shock. I don't know how we got from Sharky and George to this. But... Do you know, one of the
7: things uh, while we're on this topic, though, I, that I often think is so. Daria is in the same universe as Beavis and ButtHead. Is King of the Hill in the same universe as them? Because I feel like it might be the Judge universe. Obviously, you can't pull the live action stuff into that, but like, I don't know. But Sharky and George, you're right, has virtually disappeared. I feel like this is probably my best choice in this episode that actually fits the brief of the show, which is stuff that a lot of people have forgotten about. I
2: think a lot of people. Have I mean, most of the links to the cast on the Wikipedia page, you know those ones where it's in red as though somebody thinks there should be a page for this person, and there isn't? And there's a couple of pages where people say, oh, I remember Sharky and George. How come there's nothing about it on the internet? And that's it. It's never really been. I think there was a VHS.
7: So it's four VHS is released in the late 90s, but are now out of print. And the DVDs containing only 10 episodes of the series were released in France in 2005, but are now no longer available. And if you look it up on YouTube, all you find is the intros. No one's put up whole episodes or anything. And there is a party planning company
2: called Sharky and George operating in London. It says here. Yes, yeah, they get the top Google results. I mean, no disrespect to them, sure, they do a very good job, but, you know, to overshadow your inspiration, you must have mixed feelings about that, I'm sure. You would think so, wouldn't you? There may be no shocking George VHS or DVD, but in a really contrived link, there were hundreds and hundreds of albums released by BBC Records and Tapes in the 60s, 70s and 80s, in fact into the 90s a bit, and I've recently published Top of the Box Volume 2, a book looking at the story behind every album released by the label yes including mr men songs so to give it a bit of a push i had a chat with ben baker about something out of nothing, a hit single from 1986 performed by some of the cast of EastEnders. It was
6: a hip show then. When this came out in 1986, EastEnders really was the biggest thing on television by
2: far. Well, it was only just starting to become that because people forget when it very first started. You know, I remember the launch, even before the big trailers introducing all the cast, there was this one where suddenly it just came on between two programmes. It was a bit like Gabbo, 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 where it had kind of shadowy, unidentified people walking around the square obviously you know because they've not cast people or filmed anything yet and they said the eastenders are coming to bbc one and had a whistle like That's it that's all it was, and then there was the big launch. I remember Wendy Richard being on Wogan to pluck it about two weeks before it was on, all kinds yeah. of things, and then it just didn't take off at first. I think part of the reason it took off was the things like this was the multimedia element, but there's that whole stretch where for about six months I'm surprised it stayed on air. It was probably only because they'd invested so much money in it that you know it would have cost them more to cancel it at that point,
6: ironically, which is the case as we speak now as well. They've just built a uh, 80 million new set, and there's about 3 million watching a week, which, again, even then, I suspect when it wasn't as popular, it would still have been bringing in, what, 8-9 Oh, 9 yeah, million. and I
2: think that was considered a disaster, but it was only about, yeah. I think, about six months in. What really happened was the tabloids started to get obsessed with the cast because there were always stories about the I mean, famously, mm. there was, you know, Leslie Grantham's background, but all the younger ones were always up to all kinds. This, unfortunately, is a double-edged thing, because David Scarborough, who was the original Mark Fowler, I really want to mention this part of this, he couldn't quite handle fame also he got suspended from the show because Mark was supposed to be a racist originally and he was given the script and he said he read it and he said I'm not going to say these words to Paul J Medford I can't do that to his face and um, you know he asked them to yeah. be right and they wouldn't he was suspended he came back a couple of times didn't really work he then yeah. was suffering very badly from depression the tabloids hounded him to a hospital he was in and he killed himself and you know that's kind of an unfortunate I don't want to say legacy of the rise yeah. of the extenders but it shows what power the press have
6: I mean they were obsessed with when they obviously introduced gay characters and then they kissed and then they shed a bed together can you imagine such things but that's it that's that's the era that something out of nothing was kind of born as you say, it was actually quite a bit of lightness, I guess, in amongst all the walk Oh, yes, because it
2: came out of a storyline where I don't think they quite knew what to do with the younger characters in EastEnders at first, because obviously they had the teenage pregnancy storyline for Michelle, and they'd lost Mark for the reason yeah. to just state. So the others were just sort of hanging around being teenagers. And so Simon May, who was the EastEnders theme composer, had been pushing all kinds of tie-in singles. Some were official, some weren't. There was, the actual theme single was quite you know, a reasonable hit, actually, even when the show was. doing that well it was killing time by barry blood which was supposedly the theme from angie and tony's affair which basically meant song that was playing in the vic sometimes (laughs) it was anita dobson did anyone could fall in love we know with the lyrics the theme but yeah they obviously thought you know what can we do with these characters why don't they form a band now the first thing i should say is this was before i was the age where i would have been in bands and it bore no relation to what happened even to me at their age being in bands but at the time. I really liked it. I was really invested in this, like, gentle little storyline about them forming a band and all falling out. You might not be too surprised to learn that one of the biggest fans of the band genuinely is broadcaster Grace Dent. But when Grace joined us, she wanted to tell us about what she would put on television if she had control of the schedules on Christmas Day. And nobody, possibly including her, was prepared for what she'd put on instead of the Queen's speech. Okay, that was, of course, the Max Headroom Broadcasting signal Intrusion. (laughs) Grace, what? Why do you not even why do you want this on Christmas Day? Why do you want it anywhere at all? It's terrifying.
3: Well, look, Tim, nobody really wants or expects <laughs> my Kedri broadcast signal intrusion. Nobody's expecting him. But what I would like if I could have my perfect Christmas was that... You've just been through to the kitchen and it's about <laughs> ten o'clock and you've got, you've made yourself you know you served turkey sarni and you sit down and you're just having that you know five minutes you're gonna you, finally you've got the telly to yourself you've had a few drinks so you're feeling a bit woozy <laughs> and then suddenly massive massive distorted Max Headroom face <laughs> appears and he's going. Ah, gonna, he's throwing he's throwing Pepsi cans at the screen, and he's just he's burbling and burbling about a cartoon that only played
2: in was it Chicago? That he- oh, it's Clutch Cargo. Yeah, would you see the Pulp Fiction bizarrely. It's what Bruce Willis as a boy is watching.
3: So he's he's burbling and he's burbling, and then suddenly there's a very crude kind of change of camera, and he's got his ass out. And being hit by, now I think about it, it looks like one of the, that the lady of the butthole (laughs) surface. (laughs) <laughs> do you know what? I
2: would not be surprised if they were involved. I
3: know. I know it's exactly the kind of thing they did. And then basically, I was reading about, because I mean, I, I do do other things other than read about the Max Hedren Broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just want to say. But I was reading about it recently, about people that were actually at the TV station that night saying how terrifying it was that you started to realise that you just had no control at all. When, I think mm. when he went to the bit when he was having his bum spanked, That's when it got really frightening. So, yes, my dream Christmas would end up with Max Headroom. Is is his intrusion 32 years old now? It would be another Max Headroom intrusion for, you know, just to bring it, to bring this whole thing up to date. (laughs) <laughs> uh, what I would say is that I would, I think I, I don't want to know the end of the story and I don't want to know who he is, but I would like to see him come back. Uh, did, you, did you see this year? Because I think it was November the 20th or something that happened. Somebody wrote on Twitter, <laughs> happy Max Headroom broadcast signaling. Now. <laughs> and I was like, Tim! I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate that. <laughs> like. Did you think that? Because this is it. This is why we think alike. I saw that. I thought me and Tim Worthington should really start celebrating that every year. (laughs) Like every year we should try and get we should bring more and more people into our cult of terror.
2: Well, the things I would end with, no less terrifying. Uh, first of all, there's the year that on Christmas Day, on the test card, they airbrushed the girl out so it was just a clown. And so obviously she was coming looking for you. <laughs> and there are screen grabs of that out there. It did happen. But the other thing was, I think this is in 1989, New Year's Eve, so I'm cheating for a bit, into New Year's Day. In the Granada region, we had envision announcers You know, who would pop up before things and say, uh, well, let's see what the people Coronation Street are up to but there were three in particular who were like a rotating team there was Charles Foster who was a respectable kind of guy there was Colin Weston who was like a young trendy and Jim Pope or as we called him in our house Beardy Man and you'll know their voices even if you're not from Granada because they narrated all kinds of things like University Challenge Busman's Holiday which is the quiz show about people doing each other's jobs where one week it had a team of nuns on and the thing they used to bleep out swearing was obviously broken whenever they spoke it was being bleeped <laughs> i think oh the nuns are swearing but this <laughs> new year at midnight the three of them i would so love somebody to tape this we're in the continuity studio not actually holding up bottles of booze but they obviously celebrated like oh, hey lance happy new year <laughs> it was like television had like loosened its tie <laughs> <laughs> and it was the fact that they were also respectable normally <laughs> oh my
3: do you know something i think that we have put together the most wonderful <laughs>
2: christmas
3: uh, I, you know people's people probably heard this concept and said can they do it and i think that they're probably finding yes yes we did, we did christmas <laughs> by a thousand percent and that's just
2: maths Tim. Some of you might be aware that I also do a podcast about the Marvel Cinematic Universe called It's Good Except It Sucks and here's a couple of guests from this collection highlights from lots of familiar appearing on the show firstly me on Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings followed by Mick on the mid-90s X-Men cartoon and finally Gabby on Spider-Man No Way Home Now they wanted to move away from stereotypes but they didn't want to in effect throw the baby out with the bathwater. that there are positive characteristics and values as in artistic values to all of these characters, and they took the things that worked from Fu Manchu, from the Mandarin, who I've got plenty more to say about, took those things and made them into something that succeeds on every level. And they've done that with a few things, like jumping ahead a bit. But the Dragon, the Great Protector, is kind of inspired by a long-running Shang Chi character, Fim Fang Foom, who's a dragon who's a bit more like visually the sort of dragon you'd see on, you know, the walls of a takeaway. <laughs> Which again, it works in the context of a comic where it's more dream like you can't really do that on the screen these days. You know, I had thought, what are they going to do about that? Especially because they'd already been I think Tony Stark has some artwork of him, Fang Foom on his walls at some point, and I had thought that's how they're going to get away with not featuring him, is you know, I would have had him on the wall. But you know, the whole idea of the dragon being called the Great Protector, that they've gone back to Legends and, you know, made it into this can you say heroic about a dragon, but heroic self-sacrificing figure just determined to save the people that it, I don't know whether it's a he or a she, loves. That kind of approach really pays off when you don't just write something off completely. You say, how can we take this thing? Because the whole thing about saying problematic as opposed to wrong indicates to me that there is good and bad, not equally weighted, but in some think, you know, there is that it's problematic because you can't discard it completely. And, you know, what an effect the decision to take the things that you can't discard completely and use them to your advantage just had I think that's absolute that should be applauded from the rooftops that really really I didn't think about that until a couple of days after seen it but that has really sort of floored me that has
7: but I always feel like well they don't you know give the Morlocks some presents but they never sort of think maybe we, the Morlocks shouldn't have to live in the sewers at all you know that doesn't really come up
2: no that is something a big kind of issue with the whole presence of the morlocks in the general marvel universe is there are weirder looking characters roaming the surface with no issues yeah exactly and unlike there are members of the x-men who are weirder looking you know beast
7: Beast (laughs) is a giant (laughs) blue furry man but that's totally cool you know but these morlocks are a bit green a bit sort of pasty and it's like no you've got you must remain in your sewer we'll give you some presents (laughs) And we let you look at a Christmas tree then get back in the sewer.
4: I think with Marvel, it's got like, almost like the opposite problem to what DC have got. So with DC, I mean, besides Christopher Reeve, there is no definitive Superman, there's no definitive Batman. They just sort of exist in the ether. I don't think, have they ever found, I mean, they found a perfect Superman, but they haven't been able to replace him. I don't think they've ever found the perfect Batman. But with MCU, it's like Tony Stark is just, that's just Robert Downey Jr. You can't have another person playing Tony Stark now and you can't have another person playing Captain America well at least you can't have another person playing like Steve Rogers because it's just them I think they got it down so well the first time I mean I know that now that there's like three different Peter Parkers but I think that they would struggle especially because Alpha Molina and Bill Defoe's performances were so good and so charismatic and so well rounded I think they would struggle to replace them
2: if that makes sense In less expected Expanded Universe News, Grange Hill creator Phil Redmond has recently been talking about the possibility of bringing Grange Hill back as a film, and I was invited onto Good Morning Scotland to give my reaction to this.
8: Now, for those of us of a certain vintage, this should stir a few memories. recognise Indeed, and that will be in your head all day today. <laughs> a first broadcast back in 1977. It's 14 years since the school bell rang for the last time at Grange Hill. It's a lot longer than that since Gary and I watched mm. it. But the creator of the cult BBC children's drama, Phil Redmond, is bringing it back, setting his sights on a cinema release later this year. Well, Let's talk to Tim Worthington, who's a writer and an expert on pop culture. Morning to you, Tim. Good morning. What more do we know about the film?
2: At the moment, very little apart from Phil Redmond has said that it's coming back and it will focus more apparently on a kind of social issues approach that there was something about the school geek taking on the local council, but he's obviously trying to move with the times with it a bit because really the concept of Grange Hill as it was is a little bit outdated in some ways. So, you know, at least he is thinking ahead, but beyond that, not very much kind of concrete has been said.
8: When you say it's a little bit outdated, how so? Because do, t- do people's memories of childhood and their experiences of school change that much? Probably
2: not, but it was more the context of when the series appeared. was It was something completely new. It was, I can't say it hadn't been done before because there have been a few television programmes like The Kids from 47A and The Tyrant King, which nobody really remembers, which is a late 60s ITV thing that kind of, tried to deal with more realistic working class. Well, actually, Greta was a mixture of working class. And, know, yeah, there would always be the posh child who's ended up there and got bullied and that sort of thing. But it was a radical departure as i talking naturally as well. And also, what people really forget is, at least very early on, they used shock sparingly. You know, there were always headlines about, well, the most famous one being Zamo's heroin addiction. But the point was that it wasn't, you know, chewed in for the latest outrageous thing every week. They were very slowly built up to these things and also really underplayed them in the way that I suppose they would have been in the real school where, you know, people acknowledged that something was happening and the child got help or the teacher got help sometimes, but it was kind of brushed under the carpet. And now I think things are a little more open in terms of what you will see. You know, well, in the world in general, but on children's television as well. So there's a challenge there of how do you make that kind of an impact in a world where that impact is made several times over every day?
0: I wonder how many people will actually want to watch this and how many people will just say no.
2: Well, that's an interesting (laughs) question, because my (laughs) initial thought is, if this is going to work, if it's going to be successful, it should not be aimed at me or anyone else who remembers Grange Hill. It's got nothing to do with what any of us think of it. It's to do with what? It's aimed at, you know, a new generation of children. The reason we all like Grange Hill was that we all found our kind of intake of pupils that were around the same age as us, that we... I don't want to use the phrase grew up with, because that sounds terribly pretentious about Grange Hill, but you kind of latched on to them. And then when you got a bit older, you know, you started to think of the next intake as being, I remember finding people like Tegs Ratcliffe really annoying. That's when I stopped watching. You moved, was, you moved so on to older Tucker's lap. Well, well <laughs> that, that
8: is the thing actually, because Tucker was a wee bit too old for me, but I remember the Zamu line, the just um, say no and all the drug stuff that you've talked about, but it did have some characters that carried the whole thing through. Mrs. McCluskey, Mr. Baxter, the bullying teacher. and. Um, I just wonder if children see their teachers and, and experience things the same the same way? Because Phil Redmond is a teacher himself, so I suppose he'll, he'll be able to, to put his experiences into a film.
2: Well, it's very interesting for me because my mother was a teacher in an in the city comprehensive when Grange Hill, well, pretty much throughout the whole time we would have been watching it. And it was quite unusual that you know, there were a lot of things we weren't allowed to watch. We were always allowed to watch Grange Hill. I mean, I remember being aware of it when I was too young to watch it because I think she felt that mm. It maybe wasn't quite realistic enough. I think she had more in common with a lot of the teachers in it than maybe she would have admitted. And people like you mentioned, Bullard Baxter. I always, in my head, come back to it. It was so realistic. It had the way when he would upgrade pupils' behaviour and he'd get them to say, no, sir, and he'd repeat, no, sir, in the very kind of, there, do you see, sort of way. And it really was, it was the fact that the teachers were so realistic. And what was chimed with me more than the actual bits in school It was a bit where they're going back and forth from school. I don't know how they observed that so well, but the things that happened to them on the bus and at the bus stop and so on, really? That was like holding up a mirror to my experience of school, I'll be honest about that.
8: Tim, we talked at the beginning about the fact that we don't know much about the film. Do we even know when it's going to be released?
2: I believe a release date of either this year or next year has been floated, which you know, even given Shang-Chi The Legend of the Ten Rings was made in under a year, I do wonder if that's a little bit over ambitious. But you never know. You know, people are returning to making things again now that we are all allowed to get into studios and things again. So it's possible, you know, if the, if the yeah. will is there, if the audience well, appetite there, and if the money is there, then yeah, possibly.
8: Audience appetite has certainly tweaked minus. Nostalgic. Um, yes. We just want
6: to see what they look like these days as well, don't we? It's a bit like seeing your old school friends on uh, social media. I don't you want think to see they're
8: what... actually going to have them back.
6: Well, I think one or two of them apparently might make a cameo that be that's, it's, it's being suggested. Tucker yes. as a teacher. Yes, exactly. Maybe Roland or uh, or Zamo, as you say.
2: And now, something else you might not have heard. I recently appeared on GoonPod talking to Tyler Adams about The Wrong Box, the 1966 all-star comedy film featuring Peter Sellers alongside about 15 million other people. But we started the conversation with a chat about a recent visit to. See the Beatles
6: on the big screen. Yeah, so Tim, obviously, last time you were here it was early in the show's run. You, you came to talk about the LP Peter and Sophia, which was fantastic, and obviously rocked up again tonight to talk about actually to talk about another Peter Sellers project in air quotes. We'll come to that in a moment. Before we get onto that, reading on Twitter, I think you were watching some hijinks on the big screen last night. Is that right?
2: Yes, I was. I went to see a Hard Day's Night on the big screen, which was well, i have never actually seen any of the Beatles films in the cinema. Well, I say that I did see the rooftop concert the other week when it was given mm. a IMAX release, and I really loved seeing that, it magnified that big, but also all the extra sound detail you got and so on, the stuff you noticed, like I hadn't noticed it was a third policeman on the roof before that fellow with the moustache that goes oh, I'm just jolly well going up who apparently was about 23 or 24 at the time but I saw A Hard Day's Night was back on in cinemas I don't know why it is there are rumours apparently for 4k blu-ray I don't think that's been confirmed yet I just thought I'd really like to see it you know in the form in which it was originally intended and I did get some sense of what it must have been like going to see it in 1964 when you didn't get the Beatles for that long at all at that point even on the radio I suppose you went to see them live maybe but you you know, then that was that. That was gone. That was a moment that was gone. Whereas A Hard Day's Night, you could have gone to see again the next day, and I bet people did, actually.
6: Well, back in 64, you could have just sat there in, the, in your seat and wait for it to come on again, couldn't you? <laughs> that's
2: exactly <laughs> what they were. That's a deleted subplot from the film, basically. I think.
6: <laughs> what was that like? Uh, the thing about that film that always fascinates me, She Loves You, is slightly slowed down, isn't it?
2: Yes, and there are, of course, there's a million theories out there about as to why that is, but I think it was probably just a byproduct of the mechanics of getting the film out so quickly. You know, people like to read so much into, you know, what they think are creative decisions from, you know, the 50s and the 60s. But yeah, it's really probably just kind of where we need to get it out, that'll do. Rather than <laughs> mm. any sort of sinister plot by, I don't know, George Martin in cahoots with the zombie people. Or something, I don't know. <laughs> That's it for this collection of highlights from Looks and Familiar. Don't forget you can find the full versions of all of these shows and plenty more besides at timworthington.org. And while you're there, if you want to help support the show, why not buy one of my books, including, of course, Top of the Box Volume 2. Or if you're feeling generous, just buy me a coffee. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that and keep looking for unfamiliar things. Not that long ago, my mother asked me, have you been to see that girl you used to like yet? And I spent about 15 <laughs> minutes thinking, what the hell? Who is she asking me to pick things up with and why? And then I realised she meant the Black Widow film. <laughs>
0: She's always that girl to your mum. She's always that girl
2: that, you know, almost took you away from your mum. Top of the Box Volume 2 by Tim Worthington. The story behind every album released by BBC Records and Tapes from Play School Play On to Russell Brand's Zodiac Jukebox. Comedy, sound effects, show tunes, folk, singing soap stars, the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, and more albums of bird that you ever knew was possible to exist. More details, timworthington.org.